first four years, I got to say five years, my first four years of college football, we won a total of seven games. You can do the math, all right? We lost one game 70 to nothing, so I know what it was like to be Willamette a couple weeks ago playing the Whitworth Pirates. <laughs> it is very embarrassing to be in the losing end of a score like that. We did, my, my last year, we actually did finally get to win some, which was great. But I don't always win. I could give you lots more examples in sports, but also other things, maybe some more meaningful or important things. I remember praying for someone, a colleague, a friend, whose wife had cancer, and I was sure God was going to heal her. And I prayed for that, and I, I trusted God for that. God's going to heal her. But he didn't. And she didn't get better, and she died. And I remember standing these times, standing with people I love and care for and, and seeing them suffering and wanting to fix it, praying for them, trying to help, but, but, but really I couldn't do anything to make it better. I felt like I lost again. I like to win. I don't always win. Maybe you have some similar feelings sometimes. Well, last week we had an amazing uh, gift from Lauren, hearing this, this picture of this woman, bleeding woman, who, who didn't have hope, but living in the shadow of hope, reached out and touched Jesus and found that everything changed in her life. And today, as we continue our ser- in our series of This Changes Everything, meeting Jesus in the, in the Gospel of Mark, we have an amazing passage, uh, really a highlight passage of the Gospel of Mark, that, that helps redefine winning and losing. Redefine what it means to be a winner and loser. And I have to warn you, though, if you're like me, you might not like what we see today. Just brace yourself, buckle your seatbelts, hang on to your hats. It could be, it could be something that's not <clears throat> the most comfortable when we hear it, but we need to look at and, and face God's, God's Word together. So we're going to go to Mark chapter 8, but before we look at our passage today, uh, the part right before our passage is probably maybe the most important question in, for the, in all of life. The most important question that all of us have to answer. Jesus is up in northern Israel walking around with his disciples, and he says to them, Who do you say I am? This is the question that all of us are going to have to answer. When we die, we, we're going to say, answer this question. Who do we say Jesus was? No one else can answer it for us, and it's the question. Who is it that we say Jesus is? Maybe a question that you have, haven't answered yet, and maybe you need to. Maybe you need to read the Gospel of Mark and get to chapter 8 and say, who do I say Jesus is? Maybe that's some of us in this room. Well, Peter spoke up, and he said, you're the Messiah. You're the Messiah, Jesus. And that's, it was an amazing, bold, way-to-go Peter statement. We haven't seen that word Messiah, another word for that is Christ, another word we say is King. We haven't heard, seen that since verse 1 in, in the Gospel of Mark. Remember, if you were here the first week at chapel, the beginning of the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, eight chapters later, we hear it again. Peter, you are the Messiah. He nailed it. He got it. But see, Peter is thinking in his mind, He's thinking what every good Jewish person would be thinking about then. Messiah is this king, the restorer, the one who's going to finally bring us back to the glory days, except even better, the days when David was king and we had autonomy and these Romans weren't dominating us and oppressing us and taxing us. And we had 
commerce and, and prosperity, that those good old days, the Messiah, the King, that's who you are, Jesus. I think it might be a picture like this. I think we have a picture up here. This is what he's thinking in our terms. Superman Jesus, who's going to come and make things right, fix everything. And, and in America, maybe this is kind of, this is Americanized, what Peter might have been thinking. In America, a country that has, has roots very deeply rooted that, that being white is the, is the primary and the, the, the winning team. So this winning team, Jesus, Superman, who's going to come in in, in his whiteness and, and win for us. This is what Peter has in mind. But Jesus is about to change the expectation of what this word Messiah means. He's about to redefine what this word means. And that's where we pick it up in verses 31 to 33 of Mark chapter 8. Here together. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man, that's Jesus, must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Sorry about a different version there. This Jesus begins to redefine what this word Messiah is. This Messiah is going to suffer. A suffering Messiah. The Jewish people had no category for that. That wasn't, that wasn't on the radar of their religious possibilities. There's no such thing as a suffering Superman Jesus, Superman Messiah. That's not how it could be. There's no suffering Messiah. Messiahs come in to win. Messiahs are on the winning team, the dominating team. They're the ones who win 70 to nothing. But Jesus says, actually, I am that Messiah, but I'm going to suffer and then actually die. And yeah, I'll rise, but they didn't really understand that part yet. Well, Peter goes from the roller coaster from the, the, you know, shining star, Peter, way to go, gold star, moment check, to now <laughs> rebuking Jesus, pretty bold move, and then Jesus rebuking him, get behind me, Satan, right? You see Jesus looking at his disciples, remembering God's purposes for him. Yeah, it's tempting to, to try to win, to be the winning, again, the winning team, Actually, that's not what God sent me to do. And so Jesus rebukes Peter, says, no, no, Peter. That's not, that's not how it's meant to be. Peter, would, like what we would say, Jesus, that, that's not going to sell well. That's not going to sell you a bunch of books. That's not going to help us get followers on Instagram. That's not going to help our cause, this whole suffering thing. Let's set that aside. But Jesus remembers God's call, God's purposes, and says, no, let's do this the way God wanted it. I came to be a suffering Messiah. Well, before we judge Peter too quickly, I know I'll speak for myself, I think I would probably say something like Peter too. Jesus, that's suffering. That's not, no, no, that's not what you're here to do. You're here to win. I want to be in the winning team. I'm with you on the winning team. I like the superhero approach. 
might be helpful to remember who Jesus really was. A real person, right? Here's a picture of what Jesus might have looked like. Some archaeologists have, have, have kind of put together maybe the facial structure. I think Jesus, this, I think this helps us because it helps, remind, it helps us remind that Jesus was a Middle Eastern Palestinian man with brown skin, dark hair, not a blue-eyed, blonde hair. But one thing different, I don't, I don't think his eyes would look like this. Just uh, Jesus' eyes would have been brighter. Jesus' eyes would have been more alive than this picture. But this reminds us that Jesus came as an outsider. He was a minority, religious minority, an oppressed religious minority, born to a poor family in kind of the middle of nowhere Israel, which is the middle of nowhere country, tiny little blip on the map in this giant Roman empire of oppressors. Jesus was an outsider, a nobody, not a winner. And then Jesus came as a king. He was a Messiah, but what was his crown? It wasn't gold. His crown was made of thorns. He was a king that was crowned by suffering. This whole thing is, is backwards. See, the eternal Son of God, through whom everything was made, and, and in him all things hold together, eternity with God, from eternity with God, descended to be born of a virgin out of wedlock, amongst the smelly animals, and then descended even further to death, even death on a cross. This descent is the descent of this Messiah, this suffering Messiah. So when Jesus is confronted by Peter, he doesn't actually, he doesn't give up his suffering status. He actually doubles down. He says, no, 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 Peter. I came here to suffer. And actually, if you want to be with me, you're going to have to suffer too. So let's read the rest of the, the passage, verse 34 through 37. Jesus goes on and says, he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul or for their life? Not only do we have a suffering Messiah, but now to be a follower of this suffering Messiah, we also have to be ready to suffer and die. We also have to be ready to lay down our lives, follow him in his way of descent, of laying out our lives to God and God's purposes in us and our world at our own personal cost. Like I said, this might be a little uncomfortable. It's not the winning team. It's not, yes, so easy and victory and I'm going to go beat everyone. It's a little different than that. Last week when Mako Fujimaro was here, I was reminded of his book uh, called Silence and Beauty. It's an amazing book about, about uh, the gospel of Jesus in Japan and what that looks like in Japan and what that looked like in, in a, a time when there were missionaries in, in 16th century in Japan who came there and were uh, being persecuted 
incredible rates as the Japanese tried to get rid of those Christian influence. So they're being martyred, and as they're being killed, one of the things they started to do is they started to, to make these, these metal plates with an image of Jesus on it. And the test for the, them was, the test for these Christians was, if you stepped on the plate or spit on it, this plate picture of Jesus or, or Mary, then you would not be killed because you'd be renouncing your faith by stepping on the face and the body of Jesus. This is one of those, they're called fumiers. This is one of those fumiers from Japan in the 16th century. So as I'm, uh, this, this uh, story is actually based on this, this novel. Some of you may have seen the movie called Silence by Shusaku Endo. And in the story, I was reading this book. It's fictional, but it's historical fiction. And I, some of the characters have this choice. Am I going to step on Jesus or not? And I remember literally as I'm reading the book, like screaming out loud, no, don't do it, don't do it. You would have thought I was crazy reading it, but I was just so animated. No, don't, you can't step on that. I'm a winner. Winners don't do that. That's selling out. You don't sell out. You don't step on Jesus. No way. And maybe there's some truth to that, but Mako his book reminds, reminded me in, in a different perspective. If you see, if you look at this plate, you see it's kind of worn out. It's worn down from thousands of feet stepping on it over hundreds of years. It's been worn smooth, foot after foot stepping on Jesus. And if you think about it, we saw two pictures of Jesus earlier. I think this is the most accurate picture we have of Jesus, at least today. Jesus came to lay himself down to be stepped on, to be trod upon. He laid himself down as a suffering Messiah. He was the Son of God, but he laid himself down for foot after foot to step on him. That's the kind of Messiah we have. And the beauty of this is that it shows us the love of God revealed in Jesus, this suffering Messiah, and our invitation to suffer with him. Ben, you can come on up. Jesus, in his body broken and blood shed, he invites us in our suffering to suffer with him, to lay down our life as we follow God's call and we lay our lives down in front for others. We follow this Jesus in our own trauma, in our own doubt, in our own pain, in the suffering of the, that we face, but also in the suffering of our friends, in the suffering of our world. We face the suffering of Jesus as ones who, who come alongside with him in his suffering, ones who lay down our lives, take up our cross, die with him, and maybe even in that are worn thin. But we know And in the midst of this dying, he died our death. In the midst of that, he rose to restore us to life. See, Jesus, the suffering Messiah, suffers with us, suffers for us, invites us to the way of suffering, and we're not exempt from that as Christians. We're actually invited into that way of suffering with him. But also, we do know, in the end, he's victorious. He is victorious, and he will redeem 
all of the suffering in a new, a new heaven, a new earth, a new life in and with him. This suffering Messiah who invites us to, to lay down our lives with him. Let's stand and sing to him. So go from here knowing this suffering Messiah who has suffered for us so we don't have to put on a false facade of always winning. None of us do. This one who invites us to lay down our life to him and for him and in that find the life that is truly life. Go from here knowing the power of his resurrection life in us the power of his suffering alongside us by his spirit, the purpose of our life-giving, life-laying-down love for others as we follow the suffering Messiah in his way of faithfulness to God and God's purposes in this world. Go knowing this love, this power, this goodness of this God who's come to us in Jesus by his spirit. Amen.